Hi everybody, I'm J.D. Hansel, and this is a show called Spool and Tell. It's just like show and tell, except it's about movies, and we don't actually show them, and you're not in a classroom, so it's nothing at all like show and tell. This is, of course, a podcast about movies, and it's sort of a reverse engineering of the movie review podcast genre. Unlike other shows that pick a set of films to cover and have to watch all of them regardless of whether or not they're interesting to talk about, we choose individual movies from a wide variety of genres and time periods based on the juicy conversations they facilitate. We're just interested in good conversations and weird movies, the movies that are forces to be reckoned with. In each episode, one of the hosts, or a special guest, chooses a movie that demands discussion, for better or worse, and the other host is forced to watch it, whether they like it or not. Each of us usually tries to pick a movie that the other is not familiar with, but that many listeners in our audience might know, so we'll probably cover some of your favorite films, as well as some movies you've never heard of, and we're open to hearing your requests. Now, Nick and I both love some of the same things in movies. We're big Disney fans, big Jim Henson fans, uh, but for the most part, we like pretty different things and have different lives, different tastes. Nick is Gen X, whereas I was born in the 90s. Nick is Canadian, whereas I am from the good old U of S and A. We often disagree with each other, but we learn a lot about each other and about each other's countries and about a surprisingly wide range of topics. Uh, our conversations kind of go all over the place, and I guess that's the point. The first couple of episodes of this podcast really showcase our different perspectives. With that said, they also uh, show our common dorkiness about uh, fantastical puppet-centric adventures. So the first episode is on the 80s fantasy film Dragon Slayer, which is a weird one. And the second is even weirder. It's Hellboy to the Golden Army. You really don't have to see the first Hellboy to enjoy the second one. And honestly, you don't even need to watch any of these movies to enjoy the podcast if you really don't want to. Nick and I do our best to be funny and insightful, even for listeners who don't have time to watch these movies or who don't really know much about movies to begin with. It's a fun freaking show, and it starts right now. You're listening to Spool and Tell, a very dorky movie podcast. We take you now to a random conversation already in progress. She got into doing children's albums, and that's most of what she does. She had a reality show a few years ago. She did? Yeah, she did. I didn't know this. Let me see if I can find the name of it. Just a second. Where's Lisa Loeb from? Her parents? I don't know. It's interesting that she has covered a Muppet song, and also a Muppet has covered her song. Number one single. Okay. In this reality-based series, all of whose installments she narrates, singer-actress Lisa Loeb documented her life as a single woman in her mid-30s as she attempted to re-enter the dating scene after two failed relationships, each of which had lasted six years. With the help of her sister Debbie, who was also a singer-actress and single as well, her longtime friend Stephanie and ex-boyfriend Juan Patino, Lisa was given advice on how to find love. What year was this? What, uh, sorry, I, I'm. This got made. January twenty-second, oh six to March nineteenth, oh six, and it was on E one. This, this, like E, this, right? The same channel that has the Kardashians. Two thousand six. Yeah. So her hit song. We're talking about Lisa Loeb here. Uh, in, yeah. in case, I don't know if the show has started, so maybe people are hearing this. We're talking sure. about Lisa Loeb because I don't know how our conversations start. I don't know how <laughs> in the world we got here. But 1994 was Stay. And yeah. then she gets a part in House on Haunted Hill in 1999, even though she wasn't really having any more hits then. Then number one single starts in 2006 and ended its yeah. run... 
two months after it started. Less than two months after it started. Well, there's more. There's more? There's more. Go on. Uh, after the series ended, the goal she thought, sought was not achieved as a result of the show, as a series of events it documented failed to lead to a long-term romance for her. On January 31st, 2009, nearly three years after the series ended, Loeb married Roy Hershevit, Her someone. He's the music coordinator for Late Night with Conan O'Brien. Oh. Loeb gave birth to a baby girl on November 29th, 09. Huh. When did the Kardashians start? Ah, this is such good pod. This strikes me as this was before the Kardashians. That feels right, actually. Because it was Lisa Loeb the original Kardashian. <laughs> well, I would say, and I don't can't believe I'm going to use this reference. I think the Kardashians were the Beatles of uh, reality TV. When you think about it, just their massive impact on reality TV. I'm not, listen, don't pull that face on me. I Listen, I'm a diehard Beatles fan, so I'm not saying that they made the same contribution to society that the Beatles did. I'm just talking about the scope of it. Well, everybody, thank you for joining me for what is clearly our last episode. <laughs> <laughs> Hi, everybody. I'm J.D. Hansel. And I'm Nicholas Lemon, the one with a proper chair that doesn't have a squeaky butt. Yeah, that's, that's a reference all the listeners will get. Um, <laughs> they, I'm sure all the listeners care about my, my chair problem today. Sure. Uh, that I'm, I'm recording uh, episode one. I'm sitting in a very chair. comfy chair. It's very easy today for me, JD. We could go for like five or six hours. Uh, I don't, I, I'm quite comfortable. Or, you know, I'm thinking we'll keep it tight. I think we're just going to set a timer for like an hour. And when the timer goes off, we have to be done. Because otherwise... I don't think this is going to be a very listenable episode. And I want it to be a, a listenable episode because we're starting with, you know, episode one needs to be approachable. I don't want this to be an episode where everybody has to see the movie that we're talking about in order to listen to the episode. I want it to be. And quite honestly, they shouldn't. Everyone should be welcome to this thing. Of course e they should. Without having to watch a movie that evidently some people really don't like. So uh, the, the, not the that I don't like it. You're, you're okay. jumping the gun here. You're jumping oh, the gun here. I'm sorry. just saying, my uh, in our conversations, I'm I'm like total opposite. You're very like, in a good way, critic of of movies. Me, I'm like that was fun. I like Howard the Duck. That was fun. You know. Okay. So today's going to be a little different. It's going to be, I think, a little different. It might be. It might be because I'm I'm very often willing to be the guy who's just here for fun and silliness and flights of fancy and all that. But it's true that I come from more of a background of actually studying films academically. Correct. You come from a background as someone who makes videos and films and TV and that sort of thing. I mean, I do some of that too, but not, not on your level, uh, not for as long as you have. Uh, and I know that you also tend to approach things from just a very... Uh, simple isn't the right word, but you're very direct. Like, uh, if a movie strikes you as fun, then you go, it's yep. a fun movie. And that's yep. very that's often pretty much me. Need. I'm simple. Yeah, you're you're the fan. I'm the critic. You're the fan. The there we go. One. We have a dynamic, which is the main <laughs> thing that you need for a podcast to work. Yes. We also have a premise, I guess, in that. I guess so. Yeah. In that we've modeled this show after basically show and tell uh, in that I used to take some classes many years ago um, at my first college where at the start of all of our video classes, we could just present interesting videos that we'd found 
and mm-hmm. clips from movies or, you know, outtakes, bloopers or, or interviews, just whatever we thought was interesting to people who were making video or studying video and film. And we got to watch a lot of fun things that way and be exposed to some really weird movies and exposed to some cool movies that maybe don't get talked about as much. So I thought, since Nick and I have been talking for months now about movies that we find just fascinating, not always movies that we love, but a lot of times movies that we love, uh, not always movies that we hate either, just movies that interest us because there's something kind of crazy about them, about the fact that they got made or about the uh, movement or genre that they're part of that interests us. I thought, let's just, each week, one of us forces the other to watch a weird movie (laughs) that makes for an interesting discussion. Probably a movie that the other hasn't seen before, but maybe an old favorite of ours. Whatever we have a take on. And that's a very good way to say about this movie for me. Okay, wow. You forced me to watch it. Okay. Now, I I think it's time, now that we've we've set up the show, we've done our little introduction here, I think it's time to start the timer. All right. We've got a timer here for an hour. When the timer is done, I'm going to ring the bell. Are we done? No. Oh. Start. It didn't work. The, my mouse isn't working. Hold on. Oh, JD, you're making us look bad, man. It, it, Come on. We can't look bad. Should I they take can't control? Should I, be, should I take control? Click. There we go. Okay, 59 Yay, minutes we and started. 56 seconds, 55 seconds. Oh, the stress is killing me. So, the movie today... Yeah, no, that, that's one of the things that I wanted to ask you about. Do you want to start with the movie, or should we warm up a little bit and talk about what other movies we've been watching? What's, what's the best format here? Well, why don't we save movies we've been watching after in the little wrap-up? For the end, for the wrap-up, in case we have... The wrap-up. Yeah, up. so if we've got extra then, time, we yeah. can talk about other movies. Because I've been watching some yeah. other weird movies. Okay. I, I just saw Bugsy I, Malone I for the first it. time, and boy, <gasps> is that a weird one. Oh, that's a fun one. For show and tell, today, Today's I movie. have brought Dragon Slayer. The 1981 apparent classic that I give mixed reviews on. Yeah, I'm surprised that you haven't seen this because it is, it feels like it's kind of up your alley in that you're into some of, you're into weird fantasy stuff like I am. <laughs> like you're the one who insists that I need to watch that Dungeons and Dragons movie. Yes. So I thought surely you would have at least heard of this. How new is this to you? Totally new? Like I I watched it last night for the first time having never heard of it. Never heard of it. Okay. I never heard of it. Never heard of it. And I think that's fair. Most people have not heard of this. And I understand Uh, why. It is not for everyone. It's not for everyone. I will say to see the reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, it's like 81% positive reviews. So this is, I may be like the one of the few people that just don't like I mean, I, not well, liking the movie is not the right term. It's it's a fine movie. There's a lot about it I enjoy. There are big parts of it, though, that I was like, did I miss something? Huh. Yeah. Interesting. So this kind of this is one of two movies that Disney produced with Paramount. Do you know what the other one was? Their other Disney Paramount co-production. I want to say it's either The Black Hole or Willow. But I'm probably wrong on both accounts. Wrong on both accounts. Okay. The first one was Popeye with Robin Williams. Oh, okay. Which I always forget Disney produced. It's crazy that Disney produced either of these. Neither feel like Disney movies. But they're the result of this long-running tension in the Disney company as the studio ever ever since Walt's era in the 60s, they'd been trying to figure out how can we do movies that aren't just 
trivial fluff that's just kids stuff because the company was seen mm-hmm. as so juvenile. Of course. And in the 70s, there was less interest in fantasy, less interested in kids' movies. Uh, Disney's studio was not doing well in the 70s. Obviously, that's the dark ages at Disney. Sure. But I think it gave gave some great movies, like The Cat from Outer Space. Sure, we got some... One of my favorites. We got some interesting stuff from the Dark Ages. There's a lot of yeah. really fascinating... I'm sure many Disney Dark Ages movies are going to come up on this podcast. <laughs> uh, you think? Oh, yeah. I know. I know. Yeah. That's almost <laughs> most of what we're here for. I mean, I'm interested in bringing, like, a few foreign movies, nothing too artsy, but I'm going to... I've also got some classics that you've probably never seen in mind. Cool. I'm looking forward yeah. to that. But... yeah. This was the result of some filmmakers who were seizing on a rare opportunity here where Disney was trying something different. And fantasy was kind of on the table again. It was just different now. It wasn't the same thing that Disney had been doing in animation. It wasn't all the, how do you say his name? Ray Harryhausen? Is that how you pronounce it? Yeah, Ray it? Harryhausen. Yeah. yeah. That was mostly Who, by the out. way, was in Spies Like Us. I did not know that. He, he Yes, he is. Okay, and now we know. But this is the same year that Harryhausen did, I think, his last feature, right? Really? He did the one that was uh, the Greek myth one. With the skeletons? Oh, I can't believe I'm blanking on the name of this movie. This is going to kill me. Nick, why don't you give us your initial reactions on this film? What All was right. your initial so, take so on here's, Dragonfly? So here's my, my initial reaction with it. There's a lot that I loved. That I, I went, it's, it's put, putting aside it's of its time with the effects, just... Putting it in going, oh, the effects are great. Um, the issues I have, and I can't quite figure out if it's director-based or story-based. Because there are some sections where I just... I, I called a friend of mine who had seen it. I'm going, um, did they, like... How did they get here? Like, they just... It just seemed like there were certain sections of the story that just either weren't put in... Or they didn't bother to put in. Hmm. I love the the special effects. Sure. Um, what, what this? You know the creative choice. The creative choices with like the the practical effects were lovely. You know, I love I love the dragon. Mm-hmm. Um, I was actually was more sympathetic towards the dragon. Right. Because you are- once I found out that she had babies, I was like, this is just. I'm assuming it's a she. It's a mother just trying to feed her kids. You you guys are like up and murdering babies and a parent here. This is a very good point. Yep. And that is something that the movie doesn't really want you to think about. And <laughs> I, I do think our lead, Galen, feels a little bit bad about killing the babies. But yeah. on the other hand, those babies will just grow up to be dragons who go and kill more people and burn more villages and eat more people and cause more havoc and mayhem. Like... The premise of this movie that they need you to buy is that it comes at a particular moment in this imagined history when magic is dying out. And that means that the dragons aren't sustainable. The dragons are freaking out because they can tell magic is dying out and they're not going to last very much longer. And the wizards are dying out. There aren't really any of them left either. No sorcerer. (laughs) Like, (laughs) you've got this one sorcerer's apprentice who can do some mild magic tricks with help from magical objects. But that's about it. Like, this. what's crazy here, what interests me about this movie, and I don't totally love it either. I kind of like Dragon Slayer because I find it interesting. But what's crazy about it is 
it's a totally different take on fantasy than what other people were doing. Yes. And I haven't seen fantasy handled this way since in that it likes a particular historical moment. It supposes that once upon a time, the world was magical, right? For so much of history, the world was magic. Then magic died out at the moment when religion comes in to take its place. As I know the new that was confusing for, for me. Because he, it's not like they presented an allegory for religion. It's like, and it's Christ, the cross. So how so? so I don't me, know what you mean. Well, so the the priest mm -hmm. was holding a staff, which was very clearly a Christian symbol. Sure. And then the father of of the the female lead made a cross for her as a necklace at the end. Mm -hmm. And so for me, I'm going, so is this in the same timeline? I know I'm overthinking, but is this in the same timeline as Jesus? This is here? the same universe as Jesus. So or years later, like I, there are specifics for when this takes place specifically. So this is not a criticism. It was just, it was, I was like, so is this like a Christian allegory? It's, it's not really a Christian allegory, but it is a story about how Christianity came in power in this kingdom, in this made up kingdom in the Western world. They specifically chose to set the film after the Roman departure from Britain, prior to the arrival of Christianity. The filmmakers were interested in historicalizing magic and fantasy in relation to religion. They wanted a particular moment when this story makes sense. And that's a very modern idea of how to handle magic and religion in a story. Because in 1981, they tried to do that. Sure. Yeah. It, well, because wow. remember, they're trying. They were trying to make this film in the late seventies. They're writing this story before Reagan comes into power, and before Reagan, America wasn't as Christian as it is now. It, it's there was certainly a bump in the post-war era, but even still, in the seventies, yeah. what's interesting about this is that you can't really understand it as an eighties fantasy movie. You have to understand right. it as a leftover seventies movie from the cynical uh, post Watergate era, which was exactly what they wanted. They weren't trying to do star Wars where it's just a fun light fantasy where you don't have to think about the social consequences. You don't really need to worry <laughs> about how this big bad government could be allegorical for your government. You don't really need to be concerned about power or, you know, with Star Wars, you don't question the fascism. Like, what is it that right. makes all of these characters fascists? What do they believe in other than power for the sake of power? No, there's none of that. Mm -hmm. Star Wars is totally apolitical, not really interested in magic or religion in any specific sense. All just very vague notions in a light, fantastical way. Still, though, in a very 70s, uh, gritty, used universe thing, right? That's the phrase that Lucas always used, used universe, yeah. to say that everything looks a little worn out. Everything's a bit dusty, a bit dirty. And here, they're, Realistic. here they keep that and amp it up. They wanted 70s realism. This is the yeah. product of New Hollywood, of well, the American New Wave. P Peter McNichol, I will tell you, had some lovely 70s hair. <laughs> yes. That, that hair is right out of, for, for someone who doesn't have those curls, man, that's a beautiful head of hair on him. Isn't it something? Isn't oh it Oh my something? gosh. Uh, yeah, I like the looks of a lot of the characters in this movie. I like a lot yeah. of the performances, particularly at the beginning. Like, this movie loves old people. That's what this and, movie And gets. really good actors, too. Mm -hmm. You can tell. I loved Ralph Richardson. Oh, which one was he? He, wa he was the wizard. Yes. We see him right at the beginning. And I was sitting there going, where do I know that voice from? 
Right. I was like, that voice, I know that voice. And I realized he was the, um, he was the voiceover artist in Watership Down. No way. Right at the beginning when they do that little animation bit of describing where rabbits come from and all that. He's the, that, the voice of God. I have a confession to make. What have you, what? I've never seen Watership Down. Ooh. It's been on my list. I'm going to see oh. it. Oh, you are going to be scarred by it Yay. in a lovely way. Good. That's the point <laughs> of this podcast. We are pro scars. But I could have used more Ralph Richardson. Right. Yeah, I know. I well, feel that they, listen, I totally get what they were going for yeah. with it. No criticism of how they did it. I just loved him in this. It was just such a, he brought such gravitas in a great way to the role. Right. But then I think part of the problem here is if you have a wizard who has that much power and who like, you immediately look at this guy and know, oh, everyone's going to write him off, but he's actually extremely powerful, super cool. Like, I believe that this guy can do anything. When you have someone like that in your story the whole way through, as they do in uh, you know, Lord of the Rings, or at least for the first book. Uh, but I feel like Krull is also big on having a very powerful wizard with I've you never on your seen journey all the way through. You haven't seen Krull. Oh, my gosh. I've never seen Krull. And this is why this podcast exi- <laughs> exists. Specifically for weird 80s movies that scarred children. Yeah, uh, um, yeah I, I think you run into a problem there where it's like, how is there any conflict when you've got a really powerful wizard with you? That should resolve well, everything. So this movie Here's, here's is, the thing. This movie was inspired by The Sorcerer's Apprentice. Yes. Specifically as that story appears in Fantasia, but also just the general idea of, isn't it more interesting to actually have The Apprentice have a story? Because in the original Sorcerer's Apprentice, they're like, no, 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 no. Apprentice, hey, you sit down. Leave all this to the powerful wizard who knows what he's doing. That's kind of the theme of that story in Fantasia. Whereas here, it's more of like a, you know, rite of passage kind of thing. Coming of age, becoming the next wizard until it kind of isn't. And I think yeah. that the story gets a little confused at the end of how they want to handle that narrative. Well, well, what was fascinating to me is I was sitting there, and this you can tell just how not aware sometimes I am of my own mind, is I was watching the movie and I'm going, oh, get, they copied Gandalf off of this character. And then I had to go, wait a second, no, Lord of the Rings came before this movie. Right. So they're using it as an influence. I'm like, oh my gosh, I really need to read the books. But um, I was so shocked at the beginning. Like, they killed the wizard off right away. Mm-hmm. Well, well, what hurts me more is that they killed um, Hodge, who was sort of the wizard's other helper, who, uh, let's call him a helper. It's not really clear. He's more yeah. of a servant. It's not really clear he has to me very, what the He has a very cute there. torso. There's one point where this clothes come off on top, and you're like, oh, he's very cute on top. He, he, so very li- cute old man. Sidney Bromley is great. I love him in this. Uh, not an actor many people know. I, I only know his name because I'm reading it right now. But I, I think a lot of people know him. I really do. So his career dates all the way back to the 1940s when he was in Brief Encounter, I think is the name of the movie. Okay. But what you and I, I guess, know him for primarily yep. is The NeverEnding Story. Right. And then he also appears in um, An American Werewolf in London. I know. Crazy. I was so shocked. It's again Because, again, it's one of those voices I was listening to going, where is that voice from? Like, the, most of this cast is people, or most of the main cast, is people who are just vaguely familiar, and you just know they belong in this movie, even though you're not quite sure why, and you have to look up where else you've seen them. But they all belong here. Yeah. 
And then there's Caitlin Clark as Valerian, who is mostly just known for this role in this movie, that and appearing in the Titanic musical. Are you familiar with the Broadway musical Titanic the Musical? I know of it, have not seen it. I saw the first half at a community theater. It was very well done, but I just didn't have time to see the second half, and I figured... I think I know how this ends. You know what happens. Yeah. Yeah. I know it's the (laughs) oldest joke. I know it's a very tired joke that was overdone when the movie came out. But it's true that, like, the the movie is very good at keeping you totally interested all the way through to the end. The musical, less so. (laughs) Does not hold your attention quite as much. Significantly less suspense. What's sad is I found out she passed away several years ago from ovarian cancer. We'll never get to see the sequel. No, I know. I mean, there can't be a sequel because all the dragons are gone and all the wizards are gone. Like, yeah, this is exactly. a very final movie. It was not built for a yeah, franchise. They were, yeah, they were not going. And, and for, for, for kids out there who are millennials or Gen Zers, well, JD, you're a millennial. You know this. I'm, but, a, I'm actually uh, at the, the cusp of Gen Z and millennials. I'm right at that edge. Oh, okay. It's weird. But sure, call all me a right. millennial. I, I, I identify okay. more with millennials. So for those that are younger than JD... This is what actual movies were like before you guys came along. They were all, a lot of them were about, we're not going to create a sequel. This is an enclosed world. Sure. If a sequel happens, it was organic. Um, like Back to the Future, it was it was kind of planned, but the way they ended it, but they, they didn't, it was not. They didn't originally intend to do a sequel to Back to the Future, but they did leave a door open for it. Yeah. But then, that, again, that's still, that, that was kind of rare i don't think they were they thought that that was just a funny joke that they were ending with in back to the future and then once the sequel was ordered it's like i guess we have to follow through with this now but it just happened to work um, out really smoothly like i think star wars was the first one where sequels were like yeah there are sequels to it that's true star wars was a rare thing where the sequels were built in there was no way around it and other things tried to copy that like have you seen masters of the universe based on he-man oh yeah the oh, way yeah. that they have the post-credit scene at the yeah. end where he goes, I'll be back. And then he, of course, it never, never came back. back. No. no. So th- that's the thing is that sequels just weren't seen as a safe bet. You couldn't be right. sure that a sequel would actually get made. So why set up a movie for a sequel on that assumption? Whereas now sequels are considered the safest bet. And I'm curious about what exactly made that transition. I'm sure in future episodes we will discuss. So as far as the creative choices in this movie, sure, there's a lot about it that I loved. Yeah. I love the locations. Mm-hmm. Shot on location. No criticism. Pardon? It was shot on location in, I think, Wales? Well, it shows. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's beautiful. Like, it's when, if I was to think of a sword and sorcery type movie for a setting, it would be this feel. I would say it's like Dragon Slayer. Yeah. You know, I loved especially where the dragon was, the ro- the craggy rocks and all that. It was just organically beautiful and you could tell that that stuff was there they i don't know how much dressing they had to do on the movie but it was just or undressing for some of the characters whoa hey Uh, hey now (laughs) hey this is a disney movie okay which again is is one of the weird things that this is so the first i know pg disney movie was the black hole and that was 1979 this is just a couple years after that when they hadn't tried that many others this was part of a short run before the company's like ah we can't really do the grown-up movies we're in over our head here this isn't working for us but then there's the big change of management when eisner and katzenberg come in and they're from paramount and they're Mm. used to working on movies for grown-ups and they start touchstone with uh splash was the first touchstone movie so that idea to 
not release it under the Disney name, but release it under the name of a Disney company enabled them to actually have a long uh, series of successes in movies that were pitched at a slightly older audience. But this is weird because even though it was distributed, at least in the U.S., by Paramount, it still has the Disney name at the front, and then a lady gets naked for a second. And, (laughs) like, they're, they're very careful about it, but it's like, even... Wait, in what movie? Splash or this? Both. Um, but, it, well, in, in Splash, you see a butt real quick. Okay. In this, you get a butt and some side boob. In When they're when she's bathing, when Valerian is bathing, right. and he jumps and a, in. And, and a bit of, and a butt, a, a bit of his tinky winky. Yeah, you see a little bit, you see a little bit of a lot of things in that scene. Of his ding dong, yeah. And then, of course, there is the strongly implied sex scene later when she's all, oh, what am I going to do now? Before I had a way out when I was dressing as a boy, but now I'm a virgin and there's nothing that can possibly be done about that. Pout, pout, pout. And then, of course, I mean, my God, I did. I used that clip in the video essay I did a couple years ago on Labyrinth, talking about this interesting moment in fantasy when everything kind of aged up a little bit and got a little more adults, sort of paving the way Mm -hmm. to Labyrinth that is dealing with some, uh, Jim Henson's Labyrinth, that's dealing with some more adult themes. And I think I put in like some some kind of sexy music for when (laughs) they started making Mm -hmm. out (laughs) because it's like, they might as well have put text on screen that says they have sex now. Kids, yeah. they have sex well, now. And on another, this is what in the 80s movie. were for, was kids' movies yeah. that had stuff that shouldn't be in kids' movies, and it would get a PG rating. I know! And now the rating system has changed such that almost oh. nothing gets a G when, in, in this at this point in 1981, you could have mild profanity in a G-rated movie, and it took a yeah. lot more to get the PG. And before PG-13, R was pretty rare, unless it was a really graphic movie. But I would say, watching this, well, I, I guess can would you show it to a child? Is my question. Because depends on the age. Because what what age? I'm I wouldn't show this one given everything in it, given the way that okay. Dragon Slayer handles all, just everything involved, from the importance of uh, virginity in the storyline to. Uh, the the blood and violence in it, like there's a lot of kind of depressing stuff. There's the way that it handles religion, which could be kind of controversial. Like given all of its different el- elements and all that you see on screen, I would hold off on this one until someone was like 15, like just oh, to be no, on the safe me. side. Not not for me. Like I'm for me. I'm talking about when I was a kid. Right. I saw Dark Crystal. I think when I was like five. And you've been scarred like ever since. In a great way. So what I would do is I would say maybe 10, maybe a little. Again, this is all hypothesis, but I would say, okay, now this is a very scary movie. Yeah. You know, you're going to see some things in this that might be frightening. Remember, it's a movie. Mm -hmm. But I want to talk about it after. So I would put it in perspective for the child right. ahead of time. Again, age age appropriate. If I was if it was a kid who was like fifteen or sixteen now, th- yeah, I wouldn't really worry about the nudity because they've probably already been exposed to much worse. Really? You know, at at fifteen and sixteen, I have nieces and nephews. Yeah, yeah they they've seen a lot Fair worse. Fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Yeah. Now, um, but again, for for those that are like again 16 17 maybe just becoming 18 this was pretty standard as far as scariness in the 80s like the secret of nim sure 
was very dark. Extremely. Oh, yeah. Um, this was the age of terrifying yeah. children. And now, like... For their betterment. We're, uh, that's the thing. Is I, I think we've had this... <laughs> we've started this conversation a little bit. But I have yet to see how any generation has actually benefited from the traumas that face them in childhood. So whether it's how your generation was terrorized by these crazy 70s and 80s and early 90s kids movies, I, I think... I feel like the nail in the coffin there is Jumanji. Like, that's much later than The Witches, which is 1990, which is kind of at the end mm. of that, you know, children's that horror run. Boom. But now, of yeah. course, we're getting a new Witches from Robert Zemeckis coming out at the time of this recording in a few days. Uh, and I don't know if that'll start a resurgence in <laughs> movies that are trying to scare kids. But for me, as more of a 90s kid... I'm used to the Pixar movies that are right. trying to make children cry and that are well, dealing with really here. heavy, depressing themes. What I will tell you, there's a big difference between our generations. Why my generation loved these kind of movies mm -hmm. is because they couldn't be any scarier than what was going on in the real world, which was global annihilation from nuclear war. The Cold War in the 80s was at, at one of its peak moments. And so for us, this was scary, but a great release. I guess if, if your only goal is to overcome fear and to convince yourself that you're relatively fearless and that you can handle anything that comes your way, then yeah, that makes sense. But you also have to deal with how the Cold War was really strong in the 50s. It was, it was a very big threat then. Uh, that's when you see a lot wow. of panic about that in the movies with the monster movies, and yet, by and large, culture handled it very differently. And, you know, with my generation, there was the post-9-11 panic that resulted mm -hmm. in not really a new wave of horror or stuff designed to scare children. Again, it was a lot more of children's movies focusing on the heavy stuff. And it's like, instead of doing a children's movie in the vein of something like Snow White where it's all stories of princesses and witches and all that escapist stuff, it's much more like, here's a movie about divorce. Here's a movie about separation or moving or just... You, you want to talk about that? Watch stuff. Kramer versus Kramer. <laughs> okay, I guess I'll put that on Have you ever seen for it? a later discussion. Well, <gasps> um, we'll see the, the, other, the other thing. Um, okay, maybe maybe I should limit it to my family. There was, my there was, a, there was a fantasy boom after 9-11. That's when you get your yeah. Lord of the Rings, Narnia, Pan's Labyrinth so on but yeah go on so maybe it was maybe it was the reason in my family why we watch these movies um because my my grandfather fought in the korean war so for me the cold war was always there as a kid mm. so maybe i'm unique in that way interesting um that it, that that my perspective is coming from that standpoint that it couldn't be any scarier than what my family fought through so um but if but i think one of the issues that i have with this movie is there wasn't an ebb and flow when it comes to the darkness of it. It was either scary or just sort of there. Are you able to explain that any further? Yeah, so the really scary parts are with the dragon. Sure. And then, like, all of a sudden, just out of the blue, you had this guy who, from the beginning, came with what turned out to be um, Valerian. Um, he just, for some reason, didn't like... Peter McNichol's character. Oh, sure. So it was one, this strange juxtaposition. There was no, like, duality between the bad yeah, guy there, and the dragon. In, in this case, 
Tyrion, uh, I believe, is the character you're talking about. The the guy yes. who's all who hates everybody and who you just, have to kill me if you're gonna kill the dragon. Ha 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 ha. Like th- through most of the movie, he's like, "Well, you know that I would love to kill you," and there is sort of the question of why. Like right. he has basically no motivation in this, and that is one of the main so, things that you can critique here. Is if you're looking for what's this guy's deal, he doesn't have one. He's well, and just, that's the issue. That's I guess that's what I'm I'm trying to get across. It was either the evil of the dragon mm-hmm. or this bad guy trying to be bad, and I was going, why? Like what? Again, I love the acting in it. Uh, his like, performance he, is the great. actor did a great job. But there, my. My take is because it's fun. Like, I feel like this was <laughs> this was a movie that was able to kind of sneak in a classic Disney villain whose motivation yeah. is simply evil. But there are they try they do have a difficult job there because his reactions to things do seem kind of random. Like he, he's yeah. all I don't uh, I don't love the dragon any more than you do. And it's like, well, then why are you annoyed at the guy who's trying to kill the dragon? Why aren't you? Helping I know. People? But his whole thing was. And then again, his motivations are weird when you're dealing with uh, the the princess, who at a certain point is now all of the names in the lottery, right? Which and, I loved. I thought that was a great, which is great cool. Thing. It's an interesting twist. You could kind of see it coming. I kind of saw yeah. it coming, but I still think it was great. Yeah, and I I think that there the the king kind of approaches Tyrion and is like, "What can you do about this? Is there anything you can do?" And Tyrion's like, I, I mean, it is what it is, your highness. I don't know what you want me to do. And it's yeah. very interesting that he comes across as a guy who just likes his job, wants everything to stay normal, and doesn't like anybody who's trying to shake things up. And I feel like I've met enough people living in America in this present time who you're like, sorry, don't you want things to be better? And they're like, no. Like, I like it it's not it that is. I don't love everything about my life. I don't love the way that it is, but it's not going to get any better. So, and if you're going to try to make things better, then psh, I don't want to listen to you. I don't want to listen to any of that crap. Be realistic. Like there were just moments with that character, um, Tyrion, where I was like, it would have been nice to see his comeuppance not by Galen's role. Sure. But rather either through his own, like through his own faults. Yeah, I think that there is a case that you, if you really want to have some fun with that character and make it feel like a fully rounded character, or even just a fully developed character that sticks to some set of character qualities, then have him be the arrogant guy who thinks he's going to kill the dragon, and then he gets eaten by the dragon or something like that. Like if, if or, this- or even what they could have done is he could have taken hostage Valerian. You know, okay. and said, I'm going to hurt her, you know, so that way there was some real. Instead, it just looked like two guys measuring their ding dongs, you know. Sure. And th- that's a fair point. That's a fair criticism. I think that is kind of one of the weaknesses here is that the story is a little bit loose. And with some of the characters, you are kind of questioning what exactly the their game is and what they're supposed to even what even their function is in the story. Really, if you break it down, it's a very simple plot in which not many things happen. It's a very slow movie. Yes where you're kind of just waiting for the next development and it could kind of come from anywhere. And I think the movie confuses you by sort of following a three act structure at the front where in that, in that first act, I mean, arguably the first half of the movie is the first act, depending on how you want to frame it. But at the beginning, Mm -hmm. I mean, our hero thinks he's killed the dragon 
And they kind of rush to this climax where it's like, I did it. I used the magic. I beat the dragon. We could end the movie right here. Let's just go to the happy credits. Let's all dance. And then that's where uh, Valyrian kind of reveals to everybody that she's a lady. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Anyway. (laughs) Uh, And they think they're done. That was a confusing moment to me. Hmm? That was a very confusing moment to me because I didn't know that was her dad coming in. Or not her dad. It was... um, it was Simon coming and saying, don't reveal yourself. Yeah. I, when she was holding the dress up, I was like, who's this guy? I, th- I thought it was implied that it was her father. Simon is her father. I, No, actually, I think he's her guardian or uncle because there's some comment made at the beginning that her father died. Again, this I'm confused by the movie in a lot of in ways. In my so. notes, it said, just from what I, at least from what I saw on Wikipedia, Simon is Valerian's father, but maybe just her guardian. What? Uh, no, it's it's explicitly her father, actually, in the movie. It's her father. In the okay. movie, they do specify explicitly. She may have been lying early on because her, so much of her life was kind of a lie. I mean, here's the thing. If we were actually like smart academic critics, not that we're not smart, but I mean, I studied film. I studied film analysis undergrad i've got a bachelor's in it i think if i had gone on for another four years which someday i still might do then clearly Mm -hmm. i would come to this movie with a really great take from a queer theory perspective sure on uh valerian having to live life as a boy when she was in fact a girl the gender Mm -hmm. politics of this movie are insane they merit many essays i would love to see a lot of that was the thing i was going to say if you want to try and if you want to try and show someone who is very much, I don't want women in a position of power, use this coupled with Hunger Games and say, this is what movies used to be. This is what they are now. Hmm. They're great juxtaposition for the gender politics. There is an interesting juxtaposition there, but this movie isn't your normal damsel in distress thing. I think that the biggest, the biggest, in in many ways, I think that this is a feminist film, weirdly. But I do think that its biggest weakness is that throughout the course of the movie, Valerian is accepting her womanhood more and more. And as she does that, she becomes less and less of a character. At the beginning, well, when living as a when living as a man, she seems very strong and and capable, and she you know she's a fighter. But you still don't actually see her do that much. Uh, at at the end of the movie, it's like, what even is her plot function? What she's even here for? Like the story's just kind of dragging her along. And that was the thing I f- felt bad for the actress Caitlin Clark because there's not much of a story arc for her I know. in this. It's almost like as soon as she finds out Peter McNichol's character loves her, then she softens. And for the rest of the movie, she's soft. And I'm sort of like, well, where's that yin yang where like we could see once she reveals herself to be a boy, a bit more of the softness comes out. And then some of that hardness comes out at the end. When she like reveals as herself walking to be away. a girl. Yeah. He, or he finds out she's a girl. Sure. Um, after that, with him, she could kind of let that go a bit, just naturally. And I felt badly for for uh, Miss Clark because I was like, she's a great actress. She could have done a lot more with this. Yeah, I think that you know she get, she does a good job with uh, what's here, uh, but what's here is very complicated because it's true that again because of the odd structure of this movie, her arc mostly wraps up within the first half. And then the yes. only thing that remains is, uh, I'm still, uh, I, I might die. I might, you know, be fed to the dragon because I'm a virgin. And then once they deal with that, then 
there isn't that much for her here. But so much of that, I think, comes from this movie trying to figure out how they're going to subvert everything and avoid certain cliches while still doing a story that feels very familiar and very deeply rooted in fantasy traditions. Um, Here, I think I do have an actual quote um, uh, from, who is this, Barwood and Robbins, who are the uh, filmmakers here. They said, our film has no knights in shining armor, no penance... uh, streaming in the breeze no delicate ladies with I can't even pronounce these words diaphanous veils diaphorous I think no diaphanous is what it says diaphanous veils uh, waving from turreted castles no courtly love no holy grail instead we set out to create a very strange world with a lot of weird values and customs steeped in superstition where the clothes and manners of the people were rough their homes and villages primitive, and their countryside almost primeval, so that the idea of magic would be a natural part of their existence. What I hear in this is this, again, very 70s, very post-Watergate, cynical approach to fantasy, where it's like, if you want to do the damsel in distress thing, eh, that's too hackneyed, it's too corny. You can't do Robin Hood. You can't do, like, a big 1930s Technicolor Wizard of Oz-style spectacle here. Nobody wants that. This isn't about an awesome knight, even though, the again, the weird thing is, at this same time, you've got the sword and sorcery genre, which this is kind right. of a part of, technically, but only on a technicality, because it's not about your, you know, your He-Man, it's not about your Conan the Barbarian, no awesome muscular hottie with a sword who gets all the ladies because in those movies literally well it's... well I think Peter McNichols was pretty hot in this I mean let's okay. face it again that head of curls that head of, that head of curls mm-hmm. is very alluring it's true what hair but the other the yeah. other character again I, I I don't think they did women a great service in this movie hmm. I'm not saying it's misogynistic I just think it's very clear they didn't have the women characters in mind to have great story arcs like the princess again. Her main role was to put her name in the basket mm-hmm. and get eaten by the dragon. Okay, yeah. And that she did that. that. That's the role the character did, and that's what the character did. But then you also have to understand that a movie like this, it's not reverent about this time period in any way. None of this is like, look, wasn't this beautiful? Again, any, any beauty is what they're avoiding here. They don't really want to tell a good story about a good time. They want to be like, here's a time period that sucked. It's a time period that kind of sucked for everybody. <laughs> and that ending that you mentioned before where you have the king. The king shows up last oh. minute, sticks the sword in the dragon, takes oh, the credit for everything. Religion, t- you know, the, the Christian church that comes in takes the credit for everything. Like, it's a very cynical movie about how nothing in this society actually works the way it's supposed to. And they, you know, very early on, they're calling out how, well, yeah, you know, the, the ri- in, you mentioned the Hunger Games, right? The, yeah. the rich get out of it. The rich aren't put yep. into the lottery for the Hunger Games. Like, that theme is in both of those movies, actually. And it's well, an interesting one that they're very much like, here's the way that it works. It's a patriarch. The men are fine. The women are at risk. The princess yep. kind of gets out of it because of classism and because of wealth and because of the, the structural system in place. And here is what Valerian has had to do in order to get out of it. And that's kind of, it's, I mean, the women really don't get that many opportunities to do that many cool things in the movie, but I feel like there's a critical element to that. I don't think that that's, um, I I don't think that 
that's supposed to be the values of the movie, I think that's a criticism of the, again, the weird values of a very weird society. Yeah. I will say, though, that that ending with the king, Mm -hmm. I saw him arrive and bring out the sword. I'm like, oh, no. Mm -hmm. No. And he did it. And I was like, I have known powerful people that do that. I was like, that... It was a great way. I loved it to really show his character. As like, yeah, that pretty much sums up some powerful people. Yeah. Yep. And I love the look. I love the look that that um, Peter McNichols and Caitlin Clark give each other at the end after he sticks the sword in to the dragon. Yeah. It was like, yeah, that's about right. Yeah. And that's. It's not so much. A, I guess part of why I think this movie doesn't really resonate with you, and why it's not really my favorite. I consider it among my favorite 80s movies, but pretty low on the okay. list because I have a lot of favorite 80s movies. The tricky thing here is this movie is all about function, right? It's all yeah. about systems. Everybody here is just kind of a cog in the wheel. Just the end game here is the transition from the age of magic to the age of Christianity in the West. And everybody's just kind of playing out their part in that. You've got the wizard who knows he's about to die He's just got to make sure he dies the right way in a way that also kills the dragon. Eventually, you know, the dragon's got to end. The servant's just got to die because he's just a servant. His only purpose is to serve the wizard. Once there's no more wizard, he's gone. The king's well, just going to go on being the king, holding his power. The the princess is going to pick with the with the bloody wizard. Ralph Richardson, yeah. like he said to Peter McNichols at the end, you will know when to destroy the amulet. Uh-huh. You will know. And then they're fighting with the the rock. It's like, destroy it. No, I'll know the way it is. I'll destroy it. I'll destroy it. No, I'm supposed to. And they're holding it and they're waiting. And the wizard is clutched up by the dragon. And the wizard calls out to him basically saying, now. Yeah. And he does it. Uh I'm like, he didn't know. You're right. You're exactly right. Don't give that promise that he's going to know when he knows. He didn't know. Yeah. Yeah, I think that, and again, I think that that's to some extent intentional. I think that the movie is anti-romantic in a way. It doesn't give well, you what certainly promised. did that. It doesn't give you the the fun fantasy that you want. A few years later, you would get the Neverending Story, which looks at the original text and says, mm, "Not fun enough. Not a happy ending, <laughs> right?" Because yeah. in the in the, ori- the the movie pretty much is just the first half of the book before. It gets really moralizing because in the book, I, which I haven't read, but from what I understand, I haven't the Neverending Story book. Uh, once he gets this, it's it's again, it's like an amulet type thing. It's some powerful thing that gives him magical control over the world. JD, yeah, JD, have you never seen the Neverending no, Story? No, I've seen the movie. Don't call it an amulet thing then. I can't remember. It's been. It's a the bit. Orin. The what? Use the real the Orin. Okay, I'm sorry. It's the Orin, JD. Use the real world. I that for me that movie's very slippery. I remember a few key moments in it, and the rest, even though I've seen it a few times, I love this movie. It's one of my favorites, but it just kind of slips out of my memory. All the spe- specifics, the details, <laughs> I can't store those in my brain. But still, I think that the, in you know in the story, it's supposed to be a lot of 
heavy philosophical stuff about how once you get power, what do you do with it and how it power corrupts yeah. and all that. And for the movie, they're just like, what? No, we don't need that. It's fun. He's just going to go terrorize the bullies with a dragon now. Don't think about it. It's fun. They get their comeuppance. And here it's like the movie has a specific sense for a specific time period of in what ways it's just going to be light and fun and not care about the rules and not care about what makes sense for the characters or logic and when it's going to... You know, it, it, it's very choosy about when it will care, when it will not care, when it's going to be fun yes. and when it's just going to be cynical. And I think that there's this total distrust of power here that's like, it doesn't really matter who kills the dragon. The king's going to get all the glory for it anyway. It doesn't really matter whether magic or religion is the guiding system in this society. It's just going to be the king in power anyway. Like, this doesn't end any other way than the king stays in power and life goes on. Well, here's the other thing is when Peter McNichol's character is in prison in the castle, mm -hmm. um, Chloe Salaman's character, Princess Elspeth, Elspeth, I yeah. think I'm saying that right, comes to see him. Mm -hmm. And and then, like, she does magic. She does? She, like, she like said, I mean, this is how I remember it from watching it last night, but it's like I don't they're talking. This. She says some weird incantation and there's rumbling and the tree falls over and he Peter McNichols escapes. So here my thought is like is she like a wizard of some kind? Or did I just like completely um well well for those that aren't aware JD's looking up to see if I'm wrong cuz like I don't I'm trying to look through the movie now cuz I don't remember it going that way but I was not paying very much attention to that part of the movie this time. Um like she, he she's he's captured after trying to levitate the the table for the king, he's imprisoned, and he's in prison. And the princess comes, and they have a little interchange, inter um, a little exchange, and she says some words, and a tree falls over, and he escapes. So, first of all, I'll say she doesn't do any magic incantation here. She just she, she pulls a lever, and it opens up the prison because she's outside the prison, so she can do that. Oh. Okay, that did not come across to me. It's actually very visible, and I don't know how you were confused is it? with that one. But there is there's another part where she does speak Latin, but that's set up. Oh. Like, it's very, maybe, I don't know, maybe it's a later scene. But if, if she so got then, a hold of the amulet at some point that her father had, then if she could speak a little Latin, then she could do a little magic. Um, so it is, it is somewhat set up, but I don't... Yeah, in that scene, the way he gets so this out of is the prison me, then. is just, she simply unlocks it in a way that's quite straightforward. Oh, okay. Uh, but Well, then it's me. Well, no, I think a lot of this movie is unclear, and it's kind of a question of how much do you care? And in a movie about dragons, sometimes I'm going to care, but sometimes I'm going to not. For this one, I'm, I'm not really going to, and I thought most of the story was pretty straightforward. Um, but yes, as you point out, the dragon is kind of the highlight of this movie. Oh, all that anyone yeah. ever talks about when they talk about this movie in a positive light is the dragon. Well, what I'll say, the only, the only, and this is just tweaking it, that I would have done differently is the whole Jaws thing. Show less until the very end of the dragon. You know, like just a little bit less throughout the movie. Like you saw the claw, you saw kind of shadows and all that, which was great. But there are just moments where I would have gone, it would have been much better i think if we saw less of it and then once he's in the cave you see it well i th the way they but did it's odd because by and large that's what they do 
I think that there there's a fine line that they have to walk because they know that they yeah. have dragon in the title. And if you don't see some dragon action early on, you <laughs> might walk out. Well, apparently by the budget, a lot of people did walk out. I mean, what do you mean by that? Oh, in terms well, of box I, office, uh, that's what you mean. Yeah, box office. A quarter yeah. of the budget yeah. was just spent on the special effects for the dragon. A yeah. quarter. Well, it looked great. But it looks great. So, and a, a few notes there. For one thing, uh, Guillermo del Toro, who we'll be talking about in future episodes, I think, he has listed this as pretty much his favorite dragon. And really? a lot of other filmmakers really enjoy this movie specifically because of the dragon whose name is Vermithrax Pejorative. What makes it pejorative? I don't know. I would have just okay. gone with Vermithrax, but... So, yeah. here's... I'm going to throw something out there. Okay. There is a connection between this movie and Star Wars, the original ones. There are a lot of connections because the special effects team was largely people from Lucas, but go on. So, do you know... It's in the cast. Do you know who it is? I don't know what you mean. So Ian McDermott, oh, McDermott is in this. Emperor Palpatine. He plays yeah. one of the brothers. That's right. Was there any more to it than that? Just that he's No, that was it. Just Oh, okay. Little piece of fact. Yeah, cool. <laughs> so, uh in order they were trying to figure out how to deal with some of the effects in this cuz for the most part you're getting good puppets and animatronics and all that. But they knew for part of it they would have to do something like stop motion and they didn't want to use standard stop motion. Because that's just, you know, again, you're getting into Harryhausen territory where everybody kind of knew how that was done at that point, And they wanted to try to keep the technology moving forward, especially after Star Wars. So they built a dragon model that would move sort of like a puppet. And they would photograph it during each exposure such that what they were capturing was the movement. Instead of capturing it still they would capture little bits of movement that they could put all together in stop-motion fashion, and they called the process go-motion. Yes, go-motion. And it removed a lot of the... that, that Again, that sense of stop-go, how you really feel like it's just going from position to position. You have a lot less of that here, and it's a lot more natural, but I do think it is kind of weird, and it takes you out, because you're like, what kind of effect is that? You yeah. know, and a lot of the effects here are, like, very simple effects that... I'm looking at it like, I know exactly how that's done. I could do that in a short film in five minutes if I wanted to. But I'm still glad that they do it. Like, every time something's moving across a table and, you know, they're just dragging a magnet underneath, it's great. It's just great. <laughs> I love dumb magnet effects. Well, see, and this is the thing. I have to I have to really applaud, like, when the, the dragon is flying in the air for the first time, you see it. Mm -hmm. And the effect the movement of the wings are just beautiful. Like you, usually you see in movies of that time where the wings go up and then maybe they just come down as a hole mm -hmm. when they're that big, but you actually see the wings articulate, huh. um, which I think is just wonderful. I got to applaud them for the work they did with that. It is really remarkable. It is. I, I think that aesthetically in terms of the achievements with effects and all that stuff, this movie is stronger than it is just on story alone. Even though, again, exactly. there are interesting concepts here. They're exploring a lot of interesting concepts in a way that just, that made sense for that time, and I think it's interesting. I, I wish I had more to say on this whole... this this I know. Uh, on, on specifically the way that it handles magic versus religion, 
because again, that is so striking. Again, because as you pointed out, yeah, it's like it's a weird movement in culture when, per- particularly in America, we're about to get a heck of a lot more religious. And and let's face it, what happens in America, we get after it in Canada. Sure, so. <laughs> sure. So, um, oh boy, who's your Trump going to be? Hmm. Um, we have a few of them, and they are part of the Canadian Nazi Party. I'm not joking. We have a Canadian Nazi Party. Oh, I know. I'm well aware that there are Nazis in yeah. In, weirdly, uh, and, and I have looked. And that by up. the way, Proud Boys is a Canadian product, so. We Thanks. contributed something negative to the American culture. It's not just self self inflicted. Yeah, we we appreciate that. First, you give us Justin Bieber, and now this. No, actually, technically Celine Dion, then Justin Bieber, mm-hmm. and now this. Yeah, but no, but nobody hates Celine Dion. I may not like Celine Dion, but you know, like that's kind of like a to, to me. That's like the the posi- with Celine Dion. I feel like the positives and negatives cancel each other out. <laughs> Like she's she's got some good qualities and she's got some qualities that annoy me and it all kind of evens out to a, a neutral contribution from Canada. Yes. is what, is what yeah, I'm yeah, trying yeah. to say. Um, I feel just, like I had something FYI. else to say. Yeah. So the I, I know we're about out of time. We're almost out of time. Okay. I've I've got my eye on the timer. The the interesting thing about the way that this positions magic versus religion is that in most fantasy literature, particularly from like the Brothers Grimm fairy tale canon doesn't really make that distinction which is to say that you'll have these stories in the grim fairy tales where there are some fairies and there are some witches and also the virgin mary is in it like explicitly <laughs> religious figures will be sure. part of the magic and not sure. just like the devil is more common angels are more common but are there fairy tales that involve just god or saint peter totally there's plenty of that stuff i think this story of dragon slayer is actually partly based on a story about a saint who mm. fought a dragon. St. George. Um, or something like that. Yeah. yeah. So, for most of history, the two seemed like they could kind of go together, and for a long time, mm. Christianity framed magic as a very real thing that was, and, you know, witchcraft was considered a real thing that was part of, uh, that was basically part of Satanism, uh, according to uh, Christian theology. And all of this ends up kind of working around the witchcraft in Europe that would happen centuries after this, right? Because there were quite quite a few centuries after this, there were lots of witches in Europe, uh, and I think in the United States, who were, you know, of course you have the, the witch trials and you have the, you know, all the witches getting killed. And I feel like if there were to be a sequel, that's what you would want to focus on, that magic yes. doesn't totally die out here, that magic in that moment really has friction with religion as... Christianity and the church largely sides with those in power, while witchcraft was part of more of a movement for the people to have power, and was sort of associated with both anti-government sentiment and anti-capitalist sentiment. Like The history of witchcraft in Europe is fascinating. I wish we had more time to get into it. I also wish I knew more about it, because <laughs> it is weird. It is st- crazy, the social movements that that was a part of, that were part of why it had to be, you know vilified, demonized, and snuffed out. Um, but yeah, I think that this is an interesting take on a on a story. The movie, Dragon Slayer, is an interesting take on the mechanisms of power. Yes. I may not always be clear on what our main character's motivations are. I don't exactly know what their game is, but I understand how power is moving over the course of this movie in a way that is blunt 
It's not trying mm. to make it cute or fanciful. It's blunt. And so, no, keep going, keep going. Mo, I actually only had one more point about this movie, and it's totally yeah. random. I'm not sure no, that no, it's go relevant. Ahead, go ahead. But go ahead. did you notice anything interesting about the music in this film? Because the music isn't really doing a classical Hollywood thing. It's not super fun and fantastical. It's not very Disney, and it's not very Star Warsy either. Yeah. Nor does it quite feel like it belongs with the sword. Again, the sword and sorcery stuff at this time that, by and large, was a lot more sexual than this film. If you see it, like, what was it? I think it was the, was it the Beastmaster? It wasn't Hawk the Slayer. I've seen some, like, low-budget sword and sorcery where the effects are way worse, and it's just like, here's a pulp novel, come on, it's 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 for 19-year-olds because there's sex in it, and that's enough to sell the movie. Um, this is not that. It's doing its own thing. And for the score, they got Alex North who did a lot of classical Hollywood music, some new Hollywood music. He did the score for Spartacus, for Stanley Kubrick. Oh, okay. So Kubrick then commissioned him to do the music for 2001 A Space Odyssey. Hmm. And in one of the most infamous, or perhaps just famous, uh, moves in the history of movie music, the entire beautiful score that he wrote, or almost all of it, was thrown away when Kubrick instead decided to use classical music. Oh, which wow. defined, totally redefined the tone of the entire movie. It becomes no a classical movie vehicle at that point. So then Alex North has this great score that he's sitting on for years. Oh. And he reuses a lot of that music for this film. So you are getting some of the 2001 rejects. Oh, my timer's going off. It's okay. I'm going to say it's time. I'm ringing the bell. That's the end. We have to wrap up the show. So it's true. We actually didn't get time to talk about other movies. We might want to think about how we want to handle our format from here on out to make sure that we get to cover some other things. Well, because I think that... No, 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 I think... No, 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 Nick, I need you to let me talk. Okay. I think that part of the fun of the show is, yes, we're doing this show and tell with just one movie, but then we can bring in other movies that are part of the conversation so that the audience has more that they can converse with because I think that we could easily spend a very brief amount of time talking about some of the other weird stuff that we've been watching recently. Like, what did I see? I finally watched that Adams Family movie from the early 90s. <laughs> that Adams Family movie. The, I mean, Which the first one? one. I mean, the Adams the first Family. One, okay. I, I, if I had just said, I finally watched the Adams Family, then you'd be like, you watch the whole series? No, I watched the first movie so that I can then watch Adams Family Values, which I hear is much better. What did you think of the casting? The casting was mostly very good. Yeah. But that story is an absolute mess. And it's very telling that they were rewriting the script as they were filming. Interesting. Because this, the story is all over the place. The sense of structure is not good. Really, most of the movie is just a series of little cartoony gags. And they barely hold together. I think that the movie's okay. But now I'm really looking forward to Adam's Family Adam's Family Values, because that one's considered to be more of a masterpiece. Interesting. So before we go, I'd yeah. like to so introduce something on the podcast, because this is episode one. Yeah. It's the rating system. Okay. And we have two different... I, I'm going to put forward two different ratings. Mm-hmm. One is our personal feelings of on a scale of one to ten, and there can be like 4.5 or 7.3. Okay. Um, so our personal feelings on this movie... Mm-hmm. As as a movie itself, I understand. Then, so sorry, what you're saying is we're talking about the movie and we're talking about our feelings and their personal feelings about a personal movie feelings. 
Yes, our personal feelings for the personal movie feelings that we have. Yes. And then the second go around is the rating in the sword and sorcery genre, where it falls. Oh, okay. I haven't so on seen a scale that of many movies in that genre, but sure. On a scale of one to ten, where would you place this personally first or sword and sorcery first? As far as your, let's just say high fantasy broadly. Okay, high fantasy then, fair enough. Sure. In that canon, I would place it at about, honestly, about an eight and a half. Because that really is a genre that has a hard time, and in my opinion, it rarely actually functions well. You can make an exception for the Jackson Lord of the Rings movies, but honestly, I'm not so crazy about those either. I don't really Mm. see the appeal there other than the visuals. Uh, Here... I don't think it knows exactly what to do with all of its ideas, but it definitely has some interesting ideas. It has its own takes and its own angle, and I like it. It stands out. It's got good performances. It is, certainly, if you see some of the trash that's coming out of 80s Sword and Sorcery at this time, you can tell that this is of a higher caliber, and I think that the story here works a little bit better than the story in, frankly, a lot more boring movies in this genre. Like, as I thought I mentioned before, um, I hope I mentioned it, Clash of the Titans from Harryhausen at this time. Mm-hmm. Like, this is just a more engaging, entertaining movie than a lot of those. So I'm going to, you know, despite all its problems and how much more it could have done with sword and sorcery and high fantasy and all that, eight and a half. Okay. And personally, where would you place it? Personally? um, About a seven and a half. And why, why there? Because I just enjoy it. Because I know that it's <laughs> dumb. I know it has a lot of problems. But weirdly, that makes me like it a little more in some ways. I just I just okay. find it fascinating and strange and I dig it. I just dig it. It's interesting. Just, it, it's an interesting time capsule with cool animatronics and sometimes that's about enough for me. No need for justification more than that. Sure. Now so you So for for me. Okay. Yeah. So I'm going to do the high fantasy. And just to clarify, where what other type of movies would you put in the high fantasy? Okay. So obviously your Jackson Lord of the Rings. Yeah. He-Man. I, I I mean the the show maybe the movie is weird because that's more okay. of an interdimensional thing that's kind of sci-fi the movie is so strange we have to talk about it later um, so I would say legend perhaps from Ridley Scott legend okay maybe the never ending story but that, that's not really as interested in older fantasy types with your traditional dragons elves and all that uh, you could go with something like oh, I should just bring up a list <laughs> I can just Google high fantasy movies. Hi, fantasy. How are you doing? Yeah. Yeah. Hi, fantasy. I'm seeing Willow. Yeah, that's an obvious choice. I should have said that. Uh, the Last Unicorn. Okay. I completely know where I would put this. The then. animated Lord of the Rings, the Beastmaster, the animated The Hobbit, the Dungeons and Dragons movie you mentioned, arguably Lady Hawk, uh, maybe the Black Cauldron uh, okay. Yeah, we mentioned Legend and Clash of the Titans, maybe Dragonheart, uh, maybe right. Aragon. That gives you an idea. So, high fantasy, mm-hmm. I'm going to put it at a 6.5. Interesting. And the reason for that is the story, whatever those issues I'm having with the movie, with the story or direction or whatever it is, yeah. really take a lot off for me. Um. And that, I don't know if studio interference happened, but I think there was some real points they were missing that really just took me out of the whole 
I think I think the last unicorn do it does it better. I think um, I think Willow does it a lot better, and unfortunately, I think that's why it takes such a hit. Interesting. I having I've seen all of the three movies in question, as in this last yes. unicorn and Willow. I didn't grow up with any of them, so most of them I saw like in college or later. I would actually, for me, I like this one the best of the three. Interesting. Um, I don't care for Willow, and I would say that um, actually a, a lot of fantasy people don't care for Willow, I've found, um, which surprised me. And it got terrible reviews on release, of course. Infamous flop. But uh, The Last Unicorn is one where I think that one's a mixed bag of great story elements and terrible story elements. I think a lot of The Last Unicorn does not work at all. It's a very messy. Interesting. Movie. So, but again, I have to give top points for the acting. Sure. For whoever chose the sets, like the locations, mm-hmm. and the dragon, yeah, the dragon and the the baby dragon, just yeah, top the baby marks dragons too. for those. Though those were just top marks, absolutely. So it's just unfortunately though the those areas just take a lot out for me. Now you're gonna really hate me for this, but okay? Personally, I would put it at like a three point four. That's fine, because this- for me, I if I never see this again, I'm fine. Yeah. If it's on and there's nothing but like news about politics on, I would watch this. But otherwise, I'm like, <laughs> sorry, I'm I just not one that I'm really. It's not horrible. Listen, sure, no, I, I'm making it out worse from. than what it is. But yeah. for me, it's just I would watch other things first. That's a totally understandable take. I mean, I don't really see how you find again. I don't totally see how you find the story that confusing because I think it's straightforward. It's just not a very engaging story because very little happens over a long period of time. Not a lot of setups and payoffs, not a lot of well executed twists or character moments where a character has to make a difficult choice. You can't even point to where the lock-in is, where, mm. or, or you know, uh, rejecting the call or whatever it's called. Like any of those important things that you want to have in a Hollywood screenplay, by and large, not really here. Or if they're here, they're in the wrong place. Yeah. But weirdly, I find this story less boring than a lot of other fantasy stories because I feel like it is so simple, and it is so much just about a power structure. And about a bargain made with a dragon that it's like, yeah, I can follow this. I get the idea. Well, and that's the great thing about this podcast is I think we're going to find now I will say unless we get into the Disney movies. Sure. You're going to find my scoring is a lot different depending on the, <laughs> on the movie. But I think that's what I like about this idea when when like we were kicking around ideas. That's what makes this great is we're going to we come from different generations and exposed to different things. And we're just going to see the reactions to the different movies. Yeah. I think that'll be fun. But what's really going to make it fun is if our listeners join in, because we want to hear our listeners' reaction to these things. So by all means, uh, you can, wherever I end up posting this, I guess you'll know when it's out, uh, you can leave a comment. (laughs) Um, I'll probably put it on on Uh, jdhansel.com. I think I'll have comments open there. But uh, it'll definitely be on social media. You can certainly find it on Facebook and Twitter. I am on Twitter, at jd11pc. Nick, where are you? I'm... very simple, Nicholas Lemon. Wow, On that Twitter. is very simple. Very simple. Yeah. So I shall change we... mine to make it simpler. But yes, by yeah, please respond on Let Twitter. Tell your friends, share it around Facebook. Yep. Yeah, just keep spreading. Um, and if you the have a difference of, of opinion, this crazy, crazy movie. If you have a difference of opinion, um, contrary to what some people say, being Canadian, I do want to hear your point of view. 
you know, we have freedom of speech here and I want to hear your point of view. How's that for ham horn, yeah. horn chewing in politics there? Huh? Really? Yeah, you're definitely uh, selling Canada. <laughs> wow. I didn't realize I was getting that sales pitch today. OK, yeah. well, Canada's great. Come to Canada. It's all perfect here. I mean, many of us are considering it. That's all I'll say. <laughs> many of us are considering it. So. Uh, and with that, so, I think we've come to the end of another one, Nick. Well, what about the next movie? What's the next? Yeah. Okay. So I, I don't want to throw. I want to throw one out there for you. Okay. Yeah. The next one is your okay. choice. This one was my choice. So the next one's your choice. Just so, again. So we're clear about the format. Go ahead. Yeah. So my feeling is I want to pick one and I know you haven't seen this one. Right. I want to pick one that's a bit more modern. Okay. I also want to pick one that is in the fantasy genre that I really enjoyed. Okay. And you actually kind of said earlier who we might be covering at some point. Mm-hmm. And Hellboy 2. We're, sorry, we're covering the filmmaker Hellboy 2? No, we're... Co- oh, my gosh. I'm having a rough day, JD. Just, oh, <laughs> my sorry, God. We're covering you the filmmaker Guillermo there. del Toro's film, Hellboy 2. Hellboy 2. Do oh I my need gosh. to have seen the first Hellboy in order to... Because I have, but I don't know about listeners. Can you just jump no, right into the I second don't, one? No, I don't feel you need to see it. It's a, basically... It's basically this demon that came through a portal that was picked up and looked after by an old man in the 40s during World War II, and he now has to... He's now an adult who loves cats. Right. And uh, there's a romantic dynamic that you'll be able to pick up very easily if you've never seen the first one. Cool. Sounds easy but enough. But I think, I think out of the two, I've not seen the most recent Hellboy. Out of the two, this is my favorite. What I have heard is that Hellboy 2 is a rare example of a fantasy auteur getting to finally do something really cool with a sequel. That yep. feels like it's all in on the fantastical elements and the aesthetics and all that. So I don't I, know I will, any more than that. I'm not going to look up any more than that. I won't spoil anything. Uh, what I will say is if cool. you have only seen Pan's Labyrinth, this is a hot different take from Pan's Labyrinth really? in a great way. Yes. Cool. Oh, yeah. This is, this, is, this is one of those few big budget Hollywood popcorn movies that I would consider art. I'm looking forward to it. It's 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 really good. I'm listening. I'm looking forward to hearing your t- your view on it. And that brings us to the end of episode one of a new podcast that Nick and I will decide on the name of in on a few minutes of. after we're done. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm Nicholas Lemon, and I'm J D Hansel, and I'm the Sorcerer's Apprentice. <laughs>